and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. If you follow college basketball, and if you have followed college basketball over the last few decades, you probably recognize Fran Fraschilla. He's been an ESPN college basketball analyst. He's been the director of USA Basketball's three-on-three national, te- national team, which he took over recently. He was the head coach at St. John's. He's been a head coach at other places as well. He is somebody whose voice you probably recognize from the basketball tournament if if you're watching that in the summer. And Fran is somebody who's become an expert when it comes to basketball, there's no question. But he really is someone who loves to learn. He's highly curious. He thinks a lot about leadership and culture and mindset. And so this conversation dives into all of those pieces for sure. I think you're going to find Fran to be someone who has his convictions, certainly believes in the way things should be, but he's also open to learning and changing and 
he's highly curious. And I think you'll hear him talk about the way he's progressed and the way he'll continue to progress and the lessons he's learned along the way and the mistakes he's made and how he's tried to learn and and grow from those mistakes. So he had a lot of success early in his coaching career. He got started coaching at a very young age. And even though he's often heard from listeners on TV, at his core, he is a coach. So you may listen to him, but he loves to mentor, he loves to teach, and that's definitely going to come across today. So here is Fran Frischilla. Fran, great to have you on the podcast. We met, seems like many years ago. It wasn't that many years ago at a conference. And uh, so great to connect with you again uh, over Zoom. It's interesting because when I was doing research for this, you stopped officially coaching 20 years ago. So 2002. So here we are in 2022. (laughs) And before we started chatting, one of my questions was going to be, hey, like, would do you get the itch? Do you, do you ever want to go back and coach again? And when I asked you, Hey, what do you want to talk about? You're like, actually I'm, I'm coaching. And so yeah. <laughs> can you talk about why you decided to, to jump back in um, and, and start coaching again? I know you're, it's not a full-time gig. You're right. still doing the TV stuff. Um, but what was the desire for you to take on the USA three on three coaching job? Well, I live in Colorado Springs now, the home of USA, you know, all the Olympic uh, committees, obviously uh, USA basketball's there. I've always wanted to, I love my country. Uh, that's the first thing. I'm patriotic. I was an American history major. I, I, I read a lot of history, politics. And um, you're right. I left coaching at 43 at the college level because um, I got an opportunity to go to ESPN, Brian, and I had two young sons at the time. And as I did the first couple of years at ESPN, I had a lot of chances to go back to coaching. I think a lot of people thought I was going to do the TV as a halftime break. Um, I went to eight postseasons in nine years as a head coach, and, and I don't know what my winning percentage was, but it was pretty high. I just made a lifestyle decision to be a father full time. Uh, I loved the TV. There was no stress. I got to live in my wife's hometown, Dallas, Texas. And so, but. I have to tell you, I'm around basketball every single day of the year. I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm in New York right now with uh, the TBT tournament, that crazy million-dollar winner-take-all deal. And there hasn't been a day in my life since I was 13 where basketball hasn't consumed some part of the day. Um, When I got the opportunity in February or March um, to take on a challenge, which is a new sport, 3x3. We call it three-on-three. FIBA calls it 3x3. Uh, it's very similar to beach volleyball. Um, it's basketball, but it's a little bit unique. Um, many of us grew up playing three on three. It's now an Olympic sport. And they asked me to uh, be the national director and to coach as long as I wanted. And so we are in the midst of building a national team program. Uh, our level of play, just so you know, your podcast listeners will understand, I got essentially good G League players. Got one guy that played six games last year in the NBA, so they're not chopped liver. And it's fun because we're building towards not only building a national team, but also trying to get to the Olympics in, in Paris. And it's a great challenge for me. It, it, it scratches my itch in the summer. But, the, you know, obviously I'm still an ESPN analyst for most of the year, but I'm really enjoying the interaction with young people and, and coaching them and helping them grow and helping us you know, build a program that, you know, maybe someday could win an Olympic medal. It's very cool. I, 
when I realized I was not going to be a professional basketball player, it mm-hmm. was actually because of hoop it up, which was a three on three basketball tournament. And I was raised in, you know, a suburb of Washington, DC and, you know, definitely playing the neighborhood kids in my little bubble and sure. me and my two buddies who were like, we were the three best kids in our elementary school. And we go up to Baltimore for hoop it up. And I'm telling you, fam, we must've played mellow. Cause like we are, you know, we're the same age, me and Carmelo. And I'm telling you the first day went great. Second day we go back and we just got our asses kicked. And that's yeah. when I looked at my boys and I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is going to be, <laughs> it was a rude awakening. And, uh, but I have a place in my heart for three on three. That was one of the coolest things I did as a kid was playing hoop it up. And then of yeah. course, like, as you get older, we have a half court, you know, basketball court in our backyard and, and you play three on three and it's, it's just, it's a different game, but it's, it's yeah. a beautiful game as well. Let me, uh, add, let me, let me add to that. We, we, we have a 12 second shot clock. It is a fast game. And the best analogy I told you beach volleyball, but in point of fact, if five on five is the 1500 meters, three on three is 200 meter hurdles. It is, uh, you have to be agile, athletic, conditioned, and uh, it, that's the part that's really fun. It's a unique way of playing. And we've convinced these five-on-five guys who play in the G League and, and overseas, hey, hang with us a couple summers and maybe we can make the Olympics. So that's, that's my goal and challenge. And it's so much fun to wear USA on your shirt as you travel around the world. You mentioned the basketball tournament that you're involved with where yeah. people, they put these teams together and they're million dollars. And it's, it's fascinating. It's been amazing to watch that and the popularity of that over the years. Do you ever envision a three-on-three league where, you know, people could come and, and it would just be a different type of league, uh, different uh, basketball? Uh, you know, remember, there's the big three going on. Uh, oh, I forgot on, about that. I forgot on about CBS. That. Now, those guys are older, um, and I don't want to say they're over the hill. That would be unfair. But um, they're a little older. That They don't play. I think they play with a 14-second clock. Yeah. Um, but I could see it. It's a... I think what FIBA has done is they're just trying to grow the game of basketball around the world. And remember, places like Mongolia, Philippines, Latvia, Serbia, you know, um, well, Serbia is different because they love basketball. That's like Indiana high school basketball. But a place like Mongolia, where three on three is really popular, you can't find 15 really good six, nine Mongolian guys to put together a five on five national team. So three X three is really a great way to grow the game. And I absolutely think it's going to catch on in the United States. I'm always going to be a purist five on five, of course, but I got to tell you, it's so fast paced that if you play five on five, you're going to be a better player for playing three on three in the summer because it's quick decision-making it's at agility it's skill. It's, it's pretty cool to be a part of. It's definitely helping my basketball acumen as I pass on some ideas to my five on five coaching friends. Amazing. You mentioned 43. So here you are, you were the head coach at St. John's head coach at New Mexico, yeah. head coach at Manhattan. So at 43, I mean, you've already had what most people don't get opportunities to do at 43, right? You had yes. years of head coaching experience. And when I hear you, I hear someone say, Hey, I made a lifestyle decision. Um, can you talk a little bit about how coaching at an elite level, let's say D- division one yeah, and, or professional, the relationship that those guys have or, or gals have with the family and, and the challenges that exist 
when it yeah. comes to being a head coach since you were in a seat where you were doing that. And then obviously yeah. it sounds like you stepped away thinking that it wasn't going to be a full-time step away, but the decision to stay that course and not dive back into to that world. Can you talk about that for people yeah, who are unfamiliar I, with it? I think you have to have self-awareness. You know, um, I think self-awareness is one of the keys to life, knowing who you are, knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, um, knowing what your values are. And in my case, um, I got, like, like I said, um, my last coaching job was the University of New Mexico. I always tell people I was in witness protection out there. No, nobody knew I was out there. Even my mom was wondering whether she needed a passport. And I said, no, mom, it's New Mexico. It's, you, you know, you don't. Uh, but uh, when I left New Mexico in 2002 and I had a chance to go to ESPN, I said to my wife, uh, who had traveled the country with me, she's a Dallas girl, and we had been in Ohio, New England, New York, and then New Mexico. I said, let's take the boys back to Dallas where we can hang out with your with your parents, get get them to know my two young sons at the time. I'll do some ESPN. They've offered me a full time contract. And uh, when I'm ready to go back to coaching, I'll go back to coaching. And sure enough, every year that the job started to open, you know, the final four and whatnot. And ESPN, first of all, made it, you know, they made it comfortable for me to stay. I had a great boss at the time. And um I, I kept turning jobs down. Like I just kept turning head coaching jobs down in some cases, assistant jobs, in some cases, MBA assistant jobs. And I got to a point after seven or eight years where the call stopped coming because everybody assumed I was not going back. And that was fine with me because uh, I, as I said, I watched two sons grow up. Uh, they were nine and six at the time. Uh, my older son, James just turned 30. He was with the Orlando magic last year. My younger son, Matt, um, played for Tommy Amaker at Harvard, just spent the last five years at Villanova with Jay Wright and just went back to Harvard as an assistant coach. And, you know, as I look back on my life and career, I don't think I would have changed very much. I, I came would you up have in changed, this, Would you have changed anything? You said not very much, but you didn't say no. anything. Well, you got to remember all my friends here, the guys I grew up with, Tom Green, Tom Izzo, Bill Self, uh, you know, a lot of these guys have been very successful head coaches. Do I wish I had stayed in coaching and now have seven, 800 wins? Uh, rarely, rarely, honestly. But there's a part um, of you in there that's, you're still a coach. So there's a part yeah, of you oh, in there. That's every still, day of the week. Yeah. I mean, and and the, the cool part is I think the guys, in the, it, not only the guys I mentioned, but I think even the younger coaches, because I do so much mentorship, whether it's Zoom calls or uh, clinics or conversations on the phone. I don't, I don't need my, I say this humbly, Brian, I, I was a really good coach. Um, and I think a lot of the coaching community knows that. And so what I've done in my, in my role as an ESPN analyst is I have the time to mentor younger coaches. And I said to you before the broadcast, um, one of the things I've learned, even as I've gone, I transitioned to broadcasting was to have that growth mindset of continually learning the game. And in most cases until recently um, I was passing on what I learned to other coaches now I can use it a little bit in three on three but really the whole point is I, I love learning that I love basketball I'm in the playground of life by the way you understand like we're not I say this very seriously we're not curing cancer uh, we're not doing you know we're not I know it's cliche we're not sol solving world peace but I've been a basketball junkie my whole life and I've used basketball as a way to build relationships um, to, to, as I said, mentor. And so I, I, I look at leaving, uh, here's the best way to put it. Coaching 
at a high level division one or MBA, it's like, you're the CEO of a company. When you walk away from it and you're a broadcaster, it's like you sold your company and now you're a consultant. Mm -hmm. And I look at it as like, Hey, I had enough of coaching. I had enough of the stress. I wanted a different lifestyle. And so I transitioned pretty well into the broadcast side, but it's still basketball. It's interesting though, because you mentioned some names in there and Jay Wright, you know, just yep. stepped away and at his peak building a program in Villanova. I remember being in Las Vegas for the NCAA tournament one year, you know, you can go to Vegas and watch all the games. And I was, yeah. I was young and in my twenties and I remember talking to some Villanova guys and this was probably like 2009 or 10 or something like that. And I went to Syracuse. So we were having some interesting conversations, but I remember back then, I think I shared this with Jay when he came on the podcast. I was like, they were ready to fire your ass. <laughs> like they were like, get him out of here. And then yeah. 10, 10, 12 years later, I mean, he is an all time legendary coach leaving Villanova, a program that's become just a, a perennial power. And then you mentioned Tommy Amaker, who's, who's got an interesting journey too, because coached at Michigan um, has turned Harvard into just an incredible program. But I mean, there's no question Every time I talk to athletic directors or, or people involved with basketball, they're always wanting to get Tommy Emmerker to leave Harvard. And yes. he, he's not, he hasn't left Harvard. And so I think of Jay Wright and, and Tommy Emmerker. And, and of course we have seen a lot of other head coaches step away um, when they are in their prime Quinn Snyder, another guy at the, at the NBA level who just yes. said after I think he, like, you know, he he's been a coach at Utah and built their program and um, has one of the best reputations as a head coach in the NBA. It's just take us, take a step back and say, Hey, I'm going to take a break. Brad Stevens with the Celtics say, Hey, I'm going to go and play a different role. And so we're seeing coaches. We see it in the women's game too, by the way, and Muffin McGraw on the podcast, uh, a woman yeah. named Jessica Kern, another one named Adele Harris. Um, so, we see this in our game a lot where I say our game, cause I consider myself to be a basketball junkie too, where people yeah. are, are making lifestyle decisions. Some it's stepping away. I don't want to say Harvard's a lifestyle job, but it's different when you're coaching in the Ivy yes. league than you are when you're coaching at Michigan. It just is a different um, relationship you have with the game. So your two sons though are, are in it, right? One is, yeah at Harvard as a coach. The other was with the magic, as you said, yeah. when you're talking to them about lifestyle versus maybe that competitive drive or ambition that you had at a young age to be a coach and, and wanting to just live it, breathe it, maybe obsess over it. What's the conversation like with your kids? Because you could probably say, Hey, there are other opportunities, whether it is consulting or whether it is being on TV. Yeah. How do you, how do you talk to them about their path and their journey? Well, I, I paid for a Harvard education, not knowing that my son would want to be a coach. Okay. So I was thinking Goldman Sachs. Okay. And I was thinking of, Hey, taking care of mom and dad, like when we get older, right. And you go to Goldman and the rest is history. But I think what, what happened, I just, I, you, there were so many things in there. you got me curious about let's, let's start with my boys um, by osmosis by, and I didn't have to tell them much. They both were, you know, good high school players. Um, they both played in college. They both loved basketball. And that was all by osmosis because their dad had a job he loved. And it, their dad had a job that really is not a job. And, you know, uh, there's so many lessons that I, it, your, your, your questions, there's so many lessons that, that were in there because number one, um, we always say this, it's cliche, but find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Right. And it's true with me. I mean, a, a, a orange leather basketball has been the reason I've had an amazing life for, uh, 63 years. Hey, Fran, what do you love about it? Because I find like I've worked at the combines before yep. 
teams mm-hmm. bring me in to interview players and yes. I'll ask them why they love, like they'll all say, Oh, I love basketball. And I'm like, well, yeah. what do you love about it? And the answers Simple. are varied. The answers are yeah. varied though. Like some, I'll just say that. Like I have heard all kinds of different answers. Um, what's your answer? What's your well, answer it's, about it? It's really simple. I grew up on the playgrounds of Brooklyn, New York, and many many of us who play basketball. It doesn't matter if you're from Muncie, Indiana, Washington D.C., you know, New York City, L.A., Venice Beach. Doesn't matter if you love if you if you start playing basketball at a young age, you realize that not only the love of the game and the competition that we all like, but the lessons, the life lessons. Um, I, I'm, I've got a book in me. I do. It's in my head. Like asphalt lessons from the asphalt playground. You grow up in, in New York, in Brooklyn, like I did. You're the youngest guy in the playground. And all you're trying to do is get chosen into a five on five game with the older guys. And you want to fit in and you want to just, you don't want to screw up your team. So you, you're going to know your role. You're going to play to your strengths. Um, you're going to compete with somebody else. You're going to argue over point game and then you're going to, you know, work it all out, you know, conflict management, you know what I mean? and, um, you, you know, you, you know, you learn how to sacrifice to win a game. And if you win, you stay on the court. And if you lose, you, you wait for an hour there's, and then, you know, you, you, you settle disputes, as I said. So I, I, I grew to love the game. I was a short white kid in Brooklyn. So I was usually the shortest, whitest guy on the court, but the challenge of playing basketball for me, uh, it just, it hooked me. And because I wasn't like you going to be an NBA player, I said, okay, how do I stay in the game? And so coaching became in my head when I was 14. And so that's what I love, the challenge of, of competing. Um, some people compete in golf. Some people compete in other sports. I just happen to really be drawn to basketball. And, uh, and again, so many life lessons from the things that you learn on a playground or a, a field or a golf course. And back to your kids. So like you said, hey, you know, you, you get a degree from Harvard. You can go do whatever the heck you want. Right. Um, what is your message to them as far as thinking about, Hey, there are great upsides. Basketball is a beautiful game. Yeah. I think sports in general is highly addicting, like because it's just constant problem solving and solutions and it's never ending. Like you can't, you can't ever close it to use your growth mindset uh, concepts. I mean, it's just always evolving and changing and there's a lot of nuance there. So I understand the draw to sport in general, Yeah, but as you're, telling them, Hey, there's also some, some traps here. There's also some, some downsides that come, well, let's just call it professional sports. Cause division one is like yeah, yeah. A professional sport in a lot of ways. Can yeah. you talk about the conversations you have with your boys about maybe the downsides of, of taking the the path of, that you took up until you know, you were in your forties? Yeah, they, well, they, they knew it. They knew it. They lived it. Like I, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, I was building a St. John's program that was going to be really good. And then I interviewed, at Arizona state with a gentleman by the name of Kevin white, who wound up being a pretty good athletic director at places like Duke and Notre Dame. And Kevin offered me the Arizona state job in 1995 when I was a young coach at St. John, uh, 98, excuse me, at St. John's having success. And uh, the president of St. John's, the priest didn't like that, thought I was disloyal. I, I certainly, it was in my contract to be able to speak to anybody as long as I got permission from my athletic director. Five weeks later, after I interviewed and turned the job down, I was fired. And, you know, I, I, I guess I get some solace in the fact that they've really never recovered all these years later. Uh, St. John's uh, had, had been such a story program. And some of the people that coached there later were my friends, Chris Mullen, I grew up with. But the point is, my kids saw the downside of coaching at an early age. And but they also never saw they saw the joy I had for the game regardless. 
whether it was coaching or broadcasting. So I, as I said, by osmosis, they saw I had a job that was fun. They knew they do know the downside now and spinning it all the way back to what we talked about with Jay Wright. I love what he did. Here's a guy who I came up with again. Uh, you know, we were big East assistants and I kind of had an inkling because I had some insight with my son, Matt being at Villanova that he might walk away. And I don't think he walked away because of NIL or transfer. No, he's 60 years old, two national titles. He's got a beach house on the Jersey shore, three grown kids. And I think Jay said, my, 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 my assessment is what else can I do? I've had an amazing career. Let me enjoy myself, my wife, Patty, my kids. And not a lot of coaches have that self-awareness. They, they can't walk away. And in some cases, they don't want to walk away because they don't know what else to do. Well, it's interesting. What Jay did. It's interesting because we've had so many basketball coaches on. I'll just stay in that lane. And mm-hmm. recently we had Buzz Williams on and, and Buzz was like, as soon as my grandkids are, in, he goes, <laughs> as soon as my grandkids are, are potty trained or my kids can, uh, my basketball players are stronger than me. That, that if the, when those two things happen, I'll walk away. I, I had, I'm like, what do you mean? They're, you're telling me like the guys you had at Marquette weren't stronger than you, like Jay Crowder, yeah. Jimmy Butler. He's like, nope, they're not stronger than me. Very buzz. But then yes. Buzz yes. actually connected me to Mike Neighbors, who coaches the women's team at Arkansas. Yes. And Mike had a heart attack at 29, another one in his 30s. And I said to Mike, I'm like, hey, when when do you know it's time to walk away? He's like, I'm going to do this thing as long as I can do it. He's like, I, I hope yes. I'm coaching the rest of my life. And I would say both those guys are pretty damn self-aware but they're clear on what they want out of the game. I think they're clear on what their relationship with the game is. And like, I use this framework all the time. I say, do you have this story or does the story have you? Um, Do you have basketball or does basketball have you? And I think what some coaches realize is, whoa, basketball has me. And I'm doing it to your point because I don't know what else I'm going to do out of fear and anxiety. And so I need the game in that way. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Greg Popovich over the next yeah. you know, couple of years. Cause he's another guy who's like, he's just been a basketball lifer, but he's also got so many other areas of his life that he cares about and he's so worldly. And so you see these dynamics, but I always come back to, I respect the hell out of Jay or, or Tommy Emmerker, for example, who said, Hey, like, this is, I think a better life for me, even though maybe the money would be better somewhere else, or I'd be more famous or more, more competing for, there's a lot of different ways to define success. And I think each person has to figure out what success means to them. I said, I went to Syracuse. So we see coach K step away at Duke and we see Jim Beheim saying I'm still coaching. Right. So like for each person, it has to be clear. And I think that's something for all of us. We see that in every industry where, people have to figure out, Hey, what do I want out of this thing? And, and add some intention to it. Um, for you, as you think about yourself and the journey you've been on, what did you like about TV beyond the lifestyle? Like what was TV giving you that maybe you weren't getting in coaching because yeah, of course, as you get further and further away, you get less and less offers, but you were still, I mean, i at 50 years old, for example, you know, yes. you're seven years out, I would imagine you had all kinds of relationships in basketball. You still would be highly attractive or you can, there, you can coach high school. You can coach D three, you can coach in the G league. I mean, there, there's so many different possibilities for someone like you. What about TV for, for the last 20 years? Have you, have you enjoyed and loved? Well, well, here's the first part. And, and uh, you know, the first thing is I've never had to step away from basketball because I just transitioned from, coaching to broadcasting. So I'm still around the game every single day. And for me, again, it gets back to my kids and my family and my wife. 
30, going on 34 years this August, is that um, as they got older and got closer to high school, and I was like maybe coaching them with the skills and the drills, and I didn't want to give up. Uh, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a great example. Um, and this is common knowledge. Uh, my son, Matt, this would have been 2012. I was offered a chance to be the coach at College of Charleston, in South Carolina, a beautiful school. In a beautiful great, city. <laughs> great city, great location. The athletic director was a friend. My son, Matt, was going into his senior year of high school in Dallas. And I, that would have been an absolutely dream job for me. Mid-major, pressure, but not too much. But he was going into his senior year. My wife said, now, listen, if you take the job, we'll see you in a year because Matt's going to finish at his high school in Dallas. And I said, I'm not doing that. I want to watch his senior year. And I turned that opportunity down. And we didn't know he was going to get a chance to get an opportunity to go to Harvard and play for Tommy. I don't think that would have happened had I been somewhere else and not continued to mentor him in his senior year. And so, again, Brian, this is the hardest part for coaching. It's so addicting, the, the, the lifestyle, especially at the high level. I, I give so much credit. I, I, here's what I'm going to tell you. Five of the 10 best coaches I've ever been around in my life are people that nobody's ever heard of. You know, like they coach at D3, they coach high school in Indiana. Uh, but when you coach at the Division One level, the ego is addicting. The, the, the people telling you how great you are. I was lucky enough to like put that on the side. Now, granted, I go through an airport on occasion. Someone will say, hey, Fran Fischella, you know, I like you on ESPN. It's certainly not like Bill Self walking through a mall in Kansas City. But I just made that decision that I, my family and my kids were more important than my career. As long as ESPN gave me the chance to still be around basketball. If you told me I had to work in real estate um, and that was going to be my job, I would have said, no, I'm going to go be an assistant coach at Akron, okay? Uh, so I've had the blessing of, of, of being in basketball and, and getting to ESPN gave me that kind of fix, if you will, sit courtside at Allen Fieldhouse. Pretty good. Um, game's over. My biggest concern is, is, is it going to be Applebee's or Outback? You know, that's my toughest decision. So, again, I, I made it, it within the confines of what was best for my, myself personally, health wise and what was best for my family. And knock on wood, as I knock on wood at my desk here, uh, my boys have grown up to be really good human beings so far. They're going to be great fathers and husbands. And I, 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 that's my legacy. I tell people all the time, that's going to be your greatest legacy. Were you successful in raising your children? And it is, I just want to put a bow on this because this just happened. You mentioned golf earlier with the live mm -hmm. tour and you know, a lot of the guys moving over to that tour and saying, well, it's a better lifestyle for my family and all that. And then there's a guy named Billy Horschel, who I've actually been fortunate to spend a little time with. And Billy was like, yeah. guys, I, my family, we're clear on what I'm doing on the PGA tour. And I'm doing this in part for my family as well. And right. that's my choice. And so yeah. I think we always have to be thoughtful when we're talking about as again, like just because a guy is, like Mike neighbors is actually a really good example. Mike is like, Oh, I spend tons of time with my kids. I, I have figured out how to do this job at Arkansas and big time women's basketball and still be present for my kids. But I didn't always do that. And right. he admitted to early in his career where, and he had a divorce and he said, you know, basketball cost me my first marriage. He was pretty blunt yeah. about it. And so there are, I think too often we think that we have to do things a certain way because that's how it was modeled for us or the way we've yeah. always done it. And it's not true. Like you can still 
have your cake and eat it too. At least I saw that with my dad growing up. Like yes. that was one of the things that was really cool is he was building a massive business and was home for dinner and coached our teams. And, you know, he figured out how to do it. And yes. I think sometimes people are scared to, to make those asks and, and try to make that happen. And, and I do think it's hard in the institution of sport where you are on the road and you do have games. They tell yeah. you when your games are, and they tell you like when you have to show up, the autonomy is less, but but even like you're a good example in TV, they're telling you all that and you're choosing to step into certain things and, and maybe pass on certain things from a TV standpoint. I remember Mike Budenholzer uh, take, took his kid to the final four every single year. And yes. when yes. he was an assistant coach with pop, he would just say, Hey, pop knew, <laughs> Hey, I'm going to take my kids to the final four. And so I think there are ways to do it. I think Bruce Arians with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, he just moved on as well, but he would always talk about his coaches being there for his family. So there's ways to do it, but we have to yes. be creative in, in how we go about doing it. Um, you mentioned, you know, being at Allen Fieldhouse and, and I'd imagine you've had front row seats to some of the coolest environments in sport, both abroad. You know, I've been yeah. to Real Madrid games and they're spectacular. I'm talking yes. about basketball, not even soccer. Yeah. I've been to both. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you've been in some amazing environments uh, in your career. And it's interesting because when we started talking, I was like, oh, his background that he chose to have is the palestra. You mentioned you're yes. in a hotel room in New York, <laughs> but the background you have is the palestra. And I'm thinking, all right, Brooklyn guy, you know, New York guy, uh, the palestra, interesting choice of backgrounds. So can you talk about the palestra and then a second yeah. piece is, can you just give us a front row seat to some of the environments you've been in? Jay Billis recently listed his top five college basketball venues. I, and of course he had, that. he had one of them in there that I don't think anyone's surprised that I have been to. And, and I agree with him on, but can yeah. you talk about um, a, the palestra and B some of the yeah. environments that you've enjoyed calling games from, you know, in 1980, I was a college senior and um. I didn't tell my mom and dad. They trusted me by this time. I, I, I'd never gotten in trouble as a kid. I, I jumped on a Amtrak from Penn Station to uh, Philadelphia, 30, 30th Street Station, uh, on a Saturday afternoon. I went to a triple header at the Palestra. I just wanted to see the Palestra. Um, I, I, think, I think the last game ended at 11. I got on a train. I got back to New York at 1.30, and I was probably home in my bed by 2.30 in the morning. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, sold out Palestra, LaSalle. I remember Villanova played this guy, John Cheney from Cheney State. I'd never heard of. He was coaching that night. They were the preliminary game. Um, anyway, I took this picture a couple of years ago. Uh, Penn was playing Villanova. Uh, and Steve Donahue, the coach of Penn, is a good friend. By the way, my son's coaching at Villanova, and the Penn coach lets me come to practice the day before the game. Okay. And it was the same thing when my older son, James, played at Oklahoma. And I'm doing Big 12 games and I'm at everybody's practice because they trusted me. So I took this picture like about an hour before Penn practice. And then when uh, the, when COVID hit a couple of years ago, I noticed that I needed a Zoom background. And then I didn't have I didn't have my book behind me like you have. One uh, day, your, one day yeah. we'll, get that, we'll get that book behind you. <laughs> yeah. A, a, Lessons from the Asphalt Playground. That's the title. Um, so I took this picture and I said, that's a pretty good Zoom background. I also have a few others, uh, Allen Fieldhouse. I don't have Cameron, but today it's the Palestra for you. It's one of the iconic places in basketball. Um, to answer another one of your questions, I've been in some amazing places. I got a funny story for you. Um, in 2010, the World Champion, FIBA World Championships were going on. This is two years after we, the Redeem team won the gold in, in uh, Beijing with Coach K. And so the next team was uh, World Championships. It was Kevin... Durant, it was uh, Steph, 
Uh, I remember Kevin Love was on the team, Tyson Chandler. And um, we're doing the games from Bristol, Connecticut. It's a two-week tournament. So I'm, and I'm, and you can kind of fly in and fly out because sometimes there's two days off. So I fly in on a Sunday morning, halfway through the tournament to, to Hartford. My producer calls me and says, hey, um, is there any way you can get on a plane tomorrow and go to uh, Istanbul, which is where the FIBA World Championships were? I go, yeah, yeah. So we did the Sunday morning game in Bristol because it was time zone different. I fly home to Dallas. I get a, I get home at midnight. I get a 5 a.m. Dallas flight to JFK. And Mark Kesslersher and I get on a plane from JFK to Istanbul. And I find out later that Jerry Colangelo called, called George Bodenheimer and said, what are you guys doing? Why don't we have ESPN people here? So George Bodenheimer made the call down the chain of command and said, get two guys over there, will you? Anyway, it was the coolest thing. Kevin Durant, USA beats Turkey in the final in Istanbul. Place is packed. Kevin hits three bombs to start the game. And But the coolest thing was, who gets to go to Istanbul? You know, at the crossroads of Asia and Europe. So that's a memory I'll always you know, I always remember because of just the environment of being a basketball, taking you around the world. But I, I've been in most of the great arenas in college basketball, Allen Fieldhouse, Cameron, obviously the Palestra. They all they're all pretty cool. And uh, again, I sit courtside front row. The the food is good in the press room. And then we go out to eat as a as a, as a crew after the game. You mentioned uh, international uh, basketball, which has also been a big part of your your journey as well. And I think you were one of the first guys to really start scouting international and for the NBA draft and um, really give credence and, and give knowledge about um, some of these guys who are coming over to the NBA. And you look at the NBA today, it's just, I was thinking about like, who are the top players in the NBA? It's, it's, it's a ridiculous debate to even have, but. Well, the first, the first top four this year, because take LeBron out because of injury, they're all born outside the United States. Right. So Embiid, Giannis, Doncic, Jokic, like are those yeah. like like all there four of them. So it's pretty yeah. re- it's pretty remarkable, regardless of how you want to cut it. Um, yeah. It's just it's just amazing and incredible. But you said something earlier that I'm going to try to connect, which is you said you're a mentor and you mm-hmm. love mentoring young coaches. And I think about USA basketball and international basketball. And for so many years, I feel like USA mentored the world when it came to basketball, you know, the dream team, we had coaches that left the U S to go coach in all these places overseas. Um, NBA actually did a bunch of stuff to grow the game in a very intentional, thoughtful, smart way. Um, and they're reaping the benefits of that. So there's this has been a long journey of the NBA of USA, basically mentoring the world when it comes to basketball, we all know whenever we mentor somebody, there's a lot to learn from our mentees and we often think of mentorship as, you know, it's just a one-way street and it's just not that way. I mean, anyone who's ever mentored someone knows what you get to learn from the mentee is almost as valuable as what you can learn from a mentor. And so if we put that as an analogy, it's amazing to see now how much the U S has adapted in in the NBA and in college basketball to a lesser extent, but you see it adapting slowly. Um, to the international game. And it's almost as if the mentee is now saying, Hey, you guys taught us a lot. We appreciate it. 
But y'all might want to consider a few things that we also do as well. And you see NBA staffs now bringing over coaches yes. from Europe and adding them to their staffs, where we see general managers now coming over from, from overseas as well. So can you talk about what you've witnessed in that mentorship, mentee relationship with USA in the world as it relates to basketball and how it's evolved over time? I am so glad you asked this. You are so on target, Brian. Let me just tell you. I'm going to mention some names to you. Chuck Daly, Dr. Jack Ramsey, UB Brown, Bob McKillop, Lou Carnesecca, on and on. These guys in the 60s and 70s, they would go, and some of it was some of it was NBA, some of it was State Department. Um, Bob McKillop told me he went over, he had an Italian kid on his team in uh, Long Island, and because he'd done such a good job with him, the Italian Federation asked him to come over and to speak at clinics, and then Bob became the most well-known American coach in Europe for even even more so than Dean Smith and Coach K, because everybody in Europe knew him. We taught the world the game back in the 60s and 70s. And to your point, I can't say it any better than you did it. They taught it back to us recently. Um, and that's how good a job we did. And here's the analogy. <clears throat> a bunch of coaches go to the Louvre in Paris. We want to see the Mona Lisa. And we've got international coaches and American coaches. The Amer We're all there in the same room. The American coaches are looking at the Mona Lisa from straight on, and we see a masterpiece. And there's no question about it. The international coaches are off to the side. They have a different perspective of the Mona Lisa, but they still see a masterpiece. It, it's just a little bit different perspective. And what's happened is, to your point, we have learned a lot from the international game. Um, big guys who play away from the basket, that was them. You know, We had Bob McAdoo. We had maybe one or two guys through the history of the game. But they had a million guys like Jokic, right? Uh, Arvidas Sabonis and Dirk Nowitzki. So now the American game, college, NBA, big guys playing away from the basket, spacing the floor, shooting, skill level. Um, the beauty of our game is the globe has shrunk. And the, the lesson for anybody is, to your point, a teacher learns best when they teach uh, because they teach better. And then also their students interact with them and say, but Coach Fraschella, what about if we did this? A great idea. And so the, the beauty of the mentor-mentee uh, dynamic that I love so much in my role now as a broadcaster uh, and as a mentor, that, that is a absolutely global view of the way basketball has evolved in 50 years. Yeah, and I think there's a lesson in there for all of us, which is when we're the mentor, sometimes we can get into our head that, oh, we're just providing value to this person and it's a one-way street and it's BS yeah. because as I said, there's always something to learn, especially when you're in that dynamic. And I think there was some hubris for a lot of years with the U.S. where it's like, no, we know, but this is our game. We know how to do it. Right. And no one's taking that away from them. And, and still, even with the amount of inter international players, like the U.S. is still the best basketball country in the world. Right. Um, yes. But that doesn't mean you can't can't still learn. It doesn't mean you still can't find people that really know how to play or, or can do it differently. And so it's like we can really believe that we are the basketball power of the world. And I think we should. And I think we, we should always try to bring in Fran to make sure our three on three team is great. And we should always make sure our, you know, what Colangelo did with USA basketball I had Val Ackerman on. Um, yeah. And Val talked about her role in, in U.S. basketball. I think like constantly find the best, brightest, most talented and develop it and cultivate it. And we should always be looking at what, it, what are other people doing and what are they doing that we could steal and leverage and, and bring to ourselves. I think that's, that's human, whether you're in a tech yeah. company or insurance or real estate, it's like, what do we do really well? What are we best in the world at? And where are some of our 
blind spots and weaknesses that we might need to evolve. And you mentioned the bigs, like it was clear that, yeah. you know, you'd see international basketball and, and the U S bigs for many, many years, they only knew how to do one thing and then they would get taken advantage of. And um, it's interesting. You even mentioned Tyson Chandler earlier, earlier, like Tyson came up as a seven foot one high school kid who was athletically just incredible to watch. He also came up, I think of the bulls with Eddie Curry and like the two yeah. of them. Um, and, and yet, like if Tyson was coming up today, he would be learning way different things than he was when he was, when he was a kid, it would just, it would have evolved and changed. And so it's cool to see from my lens, the NBA, when you watch it today, it is the most beautiful form of basketball that I've seen. People like to knock the NBA and compare it to college basketball. I always think it's so silly. It's like, I can appreciate, I can watch basketball anywhere. I can watch a fifth grader, fifth grade team playing basketball and appreciate it. I can watch women's, I can watch high school, I can watch college, I can watch pro. But when you watch the skill level at the NBA level now, it's just the the level of skill and the way they move the ball and the way they share and they space. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful game. And I grew up watching MJ and those guys, like I am an old school traditionalist in that sense, but it's beautiful to watch now. Remember, remember in the early two thousands, as you were really starting to love basketball, uh, Allen Iverson was the hot thing. It was a lot of isolation basketball. And what happened to USA around the world? Honestly, this is when I started going over to Europe and my European friends would always say to me, your game is no good. You guys play too much one-on-one. You don't move the ball. It's not, it's not fun to watch. And what happened? We were embarrassed in, in Athens. Uh, Coach K and Jerry Colangelo took over. Uh, Coach K, talk about growth mindset. You know, Coach K has said this, and I've talked to him about this many times, how much he learned from being around NBA players and the international game. And so the, the whole point is, and it gets back to what I said at the very beginning and then even before we came on the air. I learned something about basketball every week of my life. Now, a lot of it I wish I knew 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But this, you know, anything you do has to continue to evolve. And you can never have the mindset that you know it all. It's not healthy. And then one last thing. When I took this team of of USA guys to France a few weeks ago, and they all play G League level. One of them plays in Finland. Khalil Iverson was a really good player at Wisconsin and a terrific kid. He's going to be on the Olympic team someday. And so I was coaching them and they said, coach, can we do this instead of this? And I go, all right, you all, you guys all good with that? And I, in the old days as a young coach, I went, no, we're doing it my way, you know, my way or the highway. And I said, how do you guys feel about that? You don't want to switch. You want to stay with your own man? Coach, let's do that. And that's, that's coaching. That's collaboration. And I try to tell my, my sons that my, my, my older son, James is taking our three-on-three team to Croatia and Prague this week because I'm doing TBT. And I made sure he knows as much as he's been around NBA players in, in the, uh, you know, with the Orlando Magic, make sure that it's not your, it's not your way or the highway. They have to have input because um, I'm a big believer in ownership, Brian. I don't care what company you run, what team you coach. If your employees don't feel they have ownership, they're not going to be great employees. They have to feel like it's, it's their success and not just the coach's success or the CEO's success. I'm going to send you something, you know, after we, we close today, there's something called the TKI confrontation model, which basically says that confrontation is about assertiveness and cooperativeness. Mm -hmm. And there's different forms of confrontation to your point. I think a lot of times we used to think confrontation is high on assertiveness and actually low on cooperation. So you're 
highly assertive, but you're not cooperative and that's competing. And to your point, yes. like competing is a needed skill for a coach to have, and certainly a needed skill for a player to have. And there are also times where you need to be more collaborative and not just yes. be high assertive and low on cooperation. And to use Iverson, just as an example, who, by the way, one of the most amazing players of all time that we both right. watched and witnessed to this day, I'm not sure there's a player I watched live on the court that I was more in awe of than what he could do on a basketball floor. But right. it was just a different game when he was playing and it was a different yes. style, um, but high on assertiveness, not necessarily high on cooperation. He was an ultimate competitor, but right. you, you watch Steph Curry now who is high on assertiveness, but you also watch him be so high on cooperation and he's collaborating and he's taking on leadership for Draymond to make, to put stuff on his own shoulders. He's making Steph a better player. Everyone that goes to Golden State gets better. And you can say it's a lot of reasons. Steve Kerr deserves credit. Bob Myers deserves credit. Draymond clay, but it's kind of like the Spurs with Duncan. It's like, if there's no Steph, I don't know how the warriors are the warriors. If there's no right. Duncan, uh, with all due respect to pop or RC Buford, they would say the same thing. Right. So they're like confrontation can be collaborative. And I think Absolutely. that's one thing we forget is that you can still be assertive. You're actually being assertive by saying, guys, is this what you want to do? You're asserting it, but you're thinking about the whole, um, and yes. there are other forms of confrontation that are accommodating, avoiding compromising. And there's yeah. times for all of them. There's times to just, you know what? I'm just going to avoid the situation. Like, let's just yeah. take a breather. There's times to yes. accommodate and just be passive and say, Hey, you all figure it out. Uh, and then there's times to compromise. So I'll send you the model. You can share yes. it with your son. Um, I it's, love a, it. it's a, it's a great, great model. Um, but you also said something that, that I want to just dive in, in on a little bit and double click on. So yeah. I had somebody on my podcast who as a kid, I was, you know, I went to his basketball camp and I grew up in Maryland. And so when I grew up, I was a senior in high school when Maryland won, won a national championship. And so what's yeah, cool Gary about Williams, I worked for Gary Williams at Ohio state. That's what we're going to talk about in a second. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I grew up watching Maryland basketball and Maryland is such an interesting job, as you know, because yeah. it, it sits between Washington DC and Baltimore. It sits in this hotbed of basketball and the community here, the state of Maryland, it, it sort of unites Baltimore and Washington, D.C. There's not actually that much that does unite us besides crabs, now maybe lacrosse, but <laughs> yeah. uh, and a beautiful flag. But University of Maryland is such an interesting basketball job. And Gary also has a lot to do with the lefty Giselle. There's there's history there, but, yes. but Gary took that job and like created an identity around it. They pressed. There was an intensity to it. They would get after it. Like I remember talking to JJ Reddick once and JJ was like, I go, I'm from Maryland. And he goes, I hate everybody at university of Maryland. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. well, what about Carolina? He's like, no, Maryland. He's like, F those guys. Right. Yeah. Fieldhouse was a hard place to play. Um, yep. And Gary had a lot to do with it. And when you're talking about growth mindset, I had Gary on this, on this podcast, fascinating story journey. Um, you know, he started off coaching, he was coaching soccer. He was doing all this yep. random stuff. He, he's just an interesting <laughs> guy, but I gotta be honest. Like when I had him on the podcast and you were around him a lot, I yes. wouldn't necessarily think of Gary as a growth mindset guy. Like Gary had no. one way to do it. And part of the reason he ended up leaving or whatever you want to call it at Maryland is like, 
Gary was going to do him and, you know, he was going to recruit the way he wanted to recruit and he was going to do things the way he wanted to do them. And so he wasn't necessarily going to change and evolve with the time, so to speak. And by the way, utmost respect, as I said, for him as a basketball coach. So you can be highly successful without that growth mindset, so to speak. And if I'm speaking out of turn, you'll, you'll jump in here. No, you're, you're right on. You're right on it. You're right on it. I was going to tell you, like, as you're talking about Gary, I said, that's anti-growth mindset right there. But um, Gary's the most competitive guy I've ever been around. I love the man um, because he could turn it off in a second. If you've ever had a conversation off the court with Gary, uh, you, you could literally not know 10 minutes after a game whether his team won on a buzzer beater or lost on a buzzer beater. Um, I've never seen anybody like that. That's one of the rare cases where I think growth mindset, um, I don't want to say counterproductive because I do think – um, because many of us, the Tom Izzo's, the guys that we kind of came up admiring, uh, you know, the Bob Knights, the Coach K when he was younger. We described we them all, as old school. We would describe them as old school. school. And it was one, it was my way or the highway. And Even I think military Gary, backgrounds, a lot of the guys you're mentioning are, you yes. know, served in our military. Yeah, and I think Gary would have adopted to the times. But to your point, what made Gary such a great coach was he had a way of doing things and his way he felt was best for everybody. And I will say this, if you played for Gary Williams and you bought in, and this is, this is what life's all about, is reaching your potential. Gary was going to get the most out of you as a basketball player and hopefully off the court as well as a human being as, as, as he possibly could. And it didn't matter, Brian, if you had 20 points against Duke the night before, the next day at practice, if you weren't going hard, Gary let you know it. And that's one of those cases where no, he was not growth mindset, but his way of doing things was the right way for him and his players. And he never let you take a day off. It didn't matter how good a player you were. All America, Joe Smith, uh, Juan Dixon, didn't matter. You were going to go hard the next day of practice. And when you were done playing with him, he squeezed every bit of potential out of you as he possibly could. That's coaching. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting. I've got this framework where I talk about curiosity and conviction. So for me, I always felt like I grew up in a house where I could speak my mind. And I know you're the oldest of seven kids, which I do want to yes. find out about what that was yeah. like. I'm <laughs> the middle, middle of three boys, but our parents really instilled a level of confidence. Speak up. If you've got something to say, stand up for what you believe is right. And so I felt like I was empowered to be highly convicted in my beliefs and, and, and to go out and, and go do things. Curiosity, as I get older and older, I start to value more and more and more, which is to me, it's hard to learn if you're not curious. It's, yeah. I just don't know how you can learn without curiosity. And I think about coaching and I think the great ones have conviction in their beliefs and their values and, and then how they want to play and they stay open to curiosity. And so like, I think of Tom Izzo as an example, like we know they're going to rebound and we know they're yeah. going to play hard and they're going to be tough to play against. <coughs> and I will tell you, I mentioned the NBA combine, which I've done a bunch of interviews for over the years. First of all, you had a lot of Michigan state guys come through. And yes. second of all, when you would interview them, the love that they had for Tom Izzo was incredible to hear because you watch Izzo on the sidelines sometimes you're like yeah he's, yeah, he's yeah. pushing the envelope here and the way he's addressing they don't, these guys. they don't know the they don't know the behind the scenes relationship you can see the love and you right. and you can hear it if you listen to the guys so i'm wondering about curiosity and conviction for you because you have to be convicted when you have a microphone on and they're asking your opinion and your advice yeah. on what yeah. you're seeing on the floor and 
how do you turn that off when you're in learning mode, growth mode, trying to be curious? How do you hold both of those? Cause I actually think coaching, if you don't have conviction and belief in what you're doing, the players will sniff that out as well. And they'll not respect you. And they, yeah. at some point you're a leader and they are looking to you to say, Hey, what are we running here? What do we need to do? And if you're just saying to them at all times, what do you guys think? Yeah. I, you're going to need to, at some point be, Hey, this is what we're doing. Follow me. Like, let's go. We got this. Yes. And so curiosity and conviction is something that I think a lot about. I, I'm curious to get it, your it, thoughts. It's a, on it's, a, it's a great point because I have to know everything about how to play a certain team uh, strategy. I have to know everything about how to play a guard, a pick and roll. I have to have all those. I have to have that information. I have to have studied the game. I have to have the, I have to have a, sense that my players say, oh my God, this guy's prepared us for everything. But the flip side of that is, like, I'll give you an example. When I was a coach, when I was a young coach, we got to a point late in the season that if there was a, a, an inbounds play, we had to defend. There were three different ways we could play it successfully. We'd done it throughout the year. We, we switched against some teams. We stayed with our man against other teams. And so we'd get to a point where, like in any business, we could be successful a number of different ways. Once I knew we had three good plans, then I would say to the team, what do you want to do? What works for you guys? Because if I give them even the third best choice and they feel that it's not the best choice, it's not going to be as good as if I give them ownership of all three choices. And so that's where the art form of coaching is of saying, I have the answers and you do too, but you're on the court and I'm not, what do you want to do? And I I think that's the beauty of what I've learned from being a young coach, my way or the highway to where it's like, okay, here's what we got here. How do you want to play it? So there's a balancing act, but it's got to be based on your knowledge of the game and then your player's comfort level with, Hey, coaches trusting us. I think about parenting in the same sense. It's like, yes. I can either tell my kids what to do or I can spark yeah. their curiosity and, and spark their independence by saying, Hey, here's some options. What would you like yeah. to do? And by the way, <laughs> if I just tell them what to do, they're probably going to say no. Whereas if yeah. I give them options and they feel empowered, you know, do you want chicken fingers or a hot dog? Honestly, both of them are yeah. bad options if we're being truthful, <laughs> but like they got to eat something. So we're going to roll yeah. with it. I want to go back to the St. John's firing. Um, yes. Yeah. How old were you? 38? Like 30? I, I think I was. I, I'm trying to remember now. I, I, let's see, 1998. Uh, I guess I was on my way to 40. I was probably 39. I, and by the way, I was the hot young coach in the country. You know so what I mean? Coaching, like I, I, I mean, you're coaching at a storied program at, yeah. at 39 years old. And, and this is why yeah. I'm bringing this up. I'm 38. So, yeah. so here oh, I yeah. am, like similar age. So I, I can only imagine. Don't get like, fired. I'm Don't not, get fired. I'm not working. I'm not working <laughs> know, as a coach. You know, I let me, let me give you some background. I was at Manhattan, four straight postseasons. We knock off Oklahoma in the tournament. St. John's was, was struggling, you know. Louis, Louis Karnaseka had retired. Um, and I become the coach of St. John's in 96. And I was like the eighth choice. You know, they didn't want to hire me. They wanted to hire John Calipari, my good friend, or Rick Majerus, or some of those other big names. And, and the clamor in New York was hire the guy in Manhattan. He's the young, hot, up and coming guy, you know, he's from Brooklyn. He's, you know, New Yorker. And so I get the job in 96 and in 1998, we had turned it around. I was in the midst of a second straight top five recruiting class. You may have heard of this guy, Meta World Peace. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I took over when Felipe Lopez and Zendon Hamilton were going to be juniors and seniors. Great documentary on Felipe, the Dominican dream, uh, 30 for 30. 
Um, so here I was the hot, literally the hot young coach in the country, a one of, I mean, I was one of, you know, I was 38, going to be 39 or whatever. And then I get in this situation where I got Dick Vitale, Sonny Vaccaro, John Calipari telling me, talk to the guy at Arizona state. He's going to double your salary. And I did. And unfortunately I stepped on a landmine because I had a president who wasn't happy with me. And, you know, five weeks later they made a coaching change. Yeah. So my question was, what did you learn about that uh, process of getting fired? What was what was that like for you then? And how would you handle it differently today if you were in that same situation? Uh, great question. Uh, I thought about it many times. And I got to tell you, I've never lamented the fact that it happened because I just felt like, OK, what's next? And I so I don't I don't even think about it. It's not part of my mindset. I but know the, how good, it is. but the growth mindset here, right? So it's yeah. interesting. If you yes. were to tap into that, what would come up for you as far very, as very uh, simple? It's great. It's a great question. Uh, you gotta, you gotta be able to manage up as well as manage down. Um, I, I, my president was a Catholic priest. Um, he was traveling the world. St. John's had a campus in Hong Kong. They had a campus in Italy. In my two years at St. John's, I wasn't around him very much. Had I had to do it differently, I would have gotten to know him better. Um, and, and, and I would have definitely managed up better. And I would have, um, here's, here's a great lesson. Cause I, I love what you do with your podcast. I've listened to many of them. I tell every young person, you better have a board of directors in your life. Uh, it's not just coaching. Um, but in you, in your life, you're going to have to make career decisions. And it might be about who you choose to date and marry your career opportunities. You have to have people who dispassionately care about you, will give you unvarnished advice and say to you, that's not a good decision. Or I wouldn't do that if I were you. I, other than my wife at the time, I had nobody I could. And I was a young guy. I didn't play for Coach K. I was a kid from Brooklyn. I didn't have a board of directors that I could say to. I'm going to interview at Arizona State and have somebody say, are you going to take the job? Because if you're just doing it to get your name out there. I wouldn't do it if I were you. You got a good team coming back, yada, yada, yada. So I absolutely think that anybody, especially a younger person, but it's really true in life, put together three or four people who, who you trust. And by the way, your coaching staff's a terrible place to start with board of directors because there's that group think in the office every day. But maybe it's your rabbi or your, pat, your priest or your, your father-in-law or your high school coach or just people who love you and care about you and want what's best for you and be able to have them tell you the unvarnished truth. And I didn't have that. So when I made this decision to talk to Arizona state and then it wound up getting me in trouble, I blame myself because I was never going to take that job. I had a monster, the team the next year that uh, the new coach, Mike Jarvis took over, they went to the elite eight with my team and should have been a final four team. But that, my point is <laughs> I did, I did learn a lot. I did. And you learn the hard way sometimes, which is, you know, part of life too. Yeah. There's some conviction there. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> there's two things that I just want to highlight and then, and then we'll start to wind down here. One is the managing up piece. I think yeah. leaders often think about how they're managing down, so to speak. And, yes. and I think leaders often are thoughtful and intentional, but one of the things I'll often say to my clients is you can survive managing up and thrive managing down. And what I mean yeah. by that is you might not have the ideal boss or the ideal yeah. board or the ideal yeah. CEO or athletic director, whatever it might be, but you yeah. need to have that relationship be 
solid. Like it doesn't yes. have to be thriving. Um, ideally, yeah, of course, we all want to have a boss yeah. that is the greatest of all time, but right. many of us don't. Um, right. And part of the challenge is that a lot of head coaches are bosses and then right. they have a hard time having a boss. So it, the autonomy gets hit there, which makes sense. So how can I survive there? Well, a relationship is based on communication, trust, respect, yes. reliability. So we need to over communicate probably to our boss and that is managing up. And a lot of times people that are bosses don't want to do that. And so it, 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 there's friction there that makes sense, but you can still thrive managing down by the way. So I yeah. think sometimes we make the mistake in saying, well, my boss won't let me do X, Y, and Z. And then as a result, we're not focused on, well, I still have all this responsibility and power to create amazing influence on the people that I'm leading. And so we sometimes let who we have to manage up to impact how we're managing down. And then the last thing I'll say is on the board of directors piece, which I know coach Calipari talks a ton about in his book and I've spent yeah. time with him. I've been amazed. I mean, I got to spend time with, with coach Cal with, which like, um, like Gary Williams, like when I got to spend time with coach Cal, I was just blown away because I would watch him listen to Del Harris or listen to Billy Bano, all these people that yeah. would just give them truth. And I was like, right. Whoa, this guy's actually listening. He asked me my advice. I was like, what are you? I don't, my opinion yeah. doesn't matter here. And I think people think of Cal as being this convicted guy and, no. you know, super confident, no. but he also has this curiosity and this desire to get information from other people. So I think that board of directors thing is true. And, and honestly, it's one of the roles I play when I'm working with leaders is that my only agenda is, is to help them get what they want. And so there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I ask questions and try to offer perspective to help them get to where they want to go. Um, so I love that you brought up the board of the board of directors, which every person should try to think about who are those people in my life. And then also the managing up piece. I think it's big. Let me add in 1978, I was a sophomore in high school and I worked Dean Smith's basketball camp and for two weeks. And I had a roommate from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who was also a sophomore in college. He was kind of loud, uh, confident, brash, uh, talked about making money, winning games. His name was John Calipari. We were, we were college sophomores when we met. He was on my board of directors. Unfortunately, back at that Arizona State thing, he told me to take the job. But, uh, but having said that, uh, to your point, uh, John is absolutely a growth mindset guy. And a lot of people wouldn't realize that that he absolutely is always looking for a better idea to do things. In fact, one of the things that's made him so successful, and, and Jay Wright fits into this category because I was going to bring up Jay earlier. Jay is the ultimate growth guy because I, I got to say this humbly. He'll probably get mad when I say this. He was a good coach when he started at Hofstra and then his first 10 years at Villanova. But you're right. There was heat on him. And to his credit, man, he became – he didn't become a very good coach. He became an amazing coach the last 10 years because he adapted and adjusted. And Cal's always been that way. And for every Gary Williams, who I love working for, who is not growth mindset, there's the Cal's there. And by the way, Tom Izzo's not. And Roy Williams wasn't. They were, we're running our stuff and you're not going to beat us and I'm going to do it this way. But for all those guys who can have success that way, Brian, I feel comfortable and I would be comfortable telling my young coaching mentees always to have a, a growth mindset and open have an open mind on how to do things. And Carol Dweck's book, as you know, growth mindset is fabulous. I think Brad Stevens said that was his favorite book. I still read it by every two years. And, uh, and again, I'm learning stuff every day about basketball that I wish I knew 20, 30 years ago. That's the beauty of what I do. All right. Before we close, there's, there's one more question. That's like a personal question. Uh, you're oh. in New York city. You're from Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your favorite restaurant in New York City? 
Oh man. Uh, you know, hole in the wall places, man. Uh, there's a place in Brooklyn called Rowan Roaster, uh, Roast Beef. There's another Roast Beef place called Brennan and Carr, Family Friends. Uh, in Manhattan, I just went to, by the way, uh, John Rossi, my good friend, who's an amazing basketball savant, just took me to Campagnola up on 74th and 1st Avenue, Italian place. Uh, I really enjoyed that. But uh, you give me a good slice of pizza anywhere in New York City. If it's a good piece of pizza, I'm, I'm happy. You don't have and a favorite you, slice? You don't have a favorite slice? Well, you know, I mean, anybody who grows up in any neighborhood in New York has got a place in their neighborhood. And I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, my place was a place called Trio on Avenue U and 19th Street in Brooklyn. And about 10 years ago, I was, I was, you know, of course, I lived in Dallas for 19 years. A neighbor said to me, hey, they opened up a new pizzeria. And the guy says he's from Brooklyn. It's Brooklyn style. And I said, yeah, sure. I go in there. The guy had a Brooklyn accent. I go, you from Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah. My grandfather owned a pizzeria in New York. Where? where? Oh, on Avenue U and 19th Street. I go, Trio? And that became Larry Brown's favorite pizzeria in Dallas when he was coaching at SMU. So give me a good piece of pizza, good Italian food. But I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Give me a deli. I'm, I'm happy with New York. Give me the culinary treats of New York City. I'm a happy man. All right. I mentioned earlier, I teased it and then I didn't ask it. So I'm just going to ask it too. Oldest of yeah. seven kids. What was your, yeah. what was your role in your family? What was the role that you, you took on in your family? Very interesting. My, my dad was a high school dropout. He, but he worked hard in Manhattan. He worked at Rockefeller center. He was a painter and not an artist, but a painter. And so um, he did a lot at NBC studios. So I used to tell everybody in the neighborhood, my dad works at NBC, but he, he did. I wasn't a lion, but I was the first in my family to go to college. Um, you know, my grandparents came over on the boat from Italy. Uh, and then three generations later, they had a grandson, a great grandson graduate from Harvard. That's the, that's the American story. Every Uber I've gotten into since I've been in New York, I've asked these people, where are you from? Pakistan. How do you like America? I love America. Because if you work hard, you can send your kids to college. And that's the generation I came up in, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s. And so I, I was the kid in, in Brooklyn, again, Jewish neighborhood. Irish Italian background, went to high school with Puerto Rican and black kids and, and everybody else from our area. And I learned how to survive life. I, the education in New York, by the way, my high school, James Madison, public high school, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Chuck Schumer, Bernie Sanders, Norm Coleman, uh, Stanley Kaplan, Chris Rock, uh, Carol King. Um, and that was Brooklyn. That was New York. We were, we were success incubators and we didn't know it. And, I, and when every morning in the summer, when I was 15, 16, 17, I took my basketball, I went to the park, I practiced all day, came back, hung out with my friends, argued about the Mets and the Yankees. And I had an idyllic lifestyle for a lower middle class kid from Flatbush. And that's you know, my that's my background. Everybody always says, well, it's in the water. That's why the pizza tastes so good in New York. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's true, but uh what was in the water that all those people came out of that area? What about that environment you think cultivated greatness? Well, it's, it's a great question because every one of the high schools in Brooklyn, Lincoln High School, Neil Sedak, uh, you know, uh, Lou Gossett Jr. And by the way, Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, it's diverse it, there. Look at, look at oh, all the diversity it, and just, you name, comedian, Supreme Court justice, politician. Uh, and, Andrew, Andrew I, I went to school with Andrew Dice Clay. He was a clown, by the way, but that's another story. But, <laughs> but, but my point is, if you Wikipedia any public high school in New York, you will. It, it, I, I, I didn't get into my Wikipedia page until like five years ago. There's like 200 names in there, you know, that 
oh my God, he was a, he was a Nobel prize winner. He was a Pulitzer prize winner. He was she, this, that. And so I, the, I, it's a good question because, you know, like Larry King at Lafayette, he grew up with Fred Wilpon, the former owner of the Mets and Sandy Colfax and, uh, you know, Barbara Streisand at Erasmus Hall and, and Billy Cunningham and Al Davis. And I think the way we grew up, we got along with each other. Uh, we came from different backgrounds. So we got along with each other. We accepted each other. Um, sports for me was a way of life. Um, again, those lessons I talked about earlier and the teachers at the public schools in New York in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was as good as going to any private school in, let's say, the D.C. area. Sidwell Friends, you know what I mean? Or St. Stephen's or wherever you talk about the people that educated me in the 70s at James Madison are the same people that educated Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Bernie Sanders and whoever else. And uh, I'm very lucky to have come up in that environment where it was a great mix of basketball, education, life, life education. And uh, I, I cannot change a single thing about my childhood growing up in Brooklyn. It was an amazing experience as I look back on it. All right. Well, that's a beautiful place for us to close. Fran, I know you're active on Twitter. Uh, you're at Fran Frischilla there. If people want to learn more about what you're doing with the three-on-three team or the, the basketball tournament, which you mentioned earlier, uh, or even just what you're up to with ESPN, uh, where else should they be directed? Is Twitter the best place? Twitter's the best place. I'm, I'm kind of toying with Instagram. I'm not good at it, but Twitter's my spot. Uh, I put a lot of information out there on, on basketball and educate people. And I would say the last thing, Brian, um, because it's really a life lesson. It doesn't matter if we had a pandemic or not. I've had some ups and downs in my career. I have a joy for life. I have a joy for basketball. Um, I don't care if you put me in a booth and call a game off of a TV monitor, you're going to hear the same joy for what I love to do. And I want people to know that, like, whatever you do, man, have a joy for what you do if you love it, because uh, life goes by fast. I'm 63 already. I feel like I'm 33. And uh, but I've been blessed because, the you know, as I said earlier, basketball has been my life. It's not the most important part of the of life. But for me, it's been my way of kind of connecting with people and mentoring people and learning and evolving and raising kids. And it all kind of fits together. Well, that's beautiful. I'm at Brian Levinson on Twitter. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Fran. Great to fire this up. I know that we've been talking about doing this in some capacity for a few years yes. ever since we met. I love watching you on TV. Uh, I'm just going to say this. You don't have to respond to it. I wish ESPN would would even leverage more of you and some other people for their NBA draft coverage, but that's just my <laughs> own my own issue. I'm like, I'm an NBA draft geek. and like You are I, correct, by the way. I wish they would. Uh, I love working for them. <laughs> At the former number one pick in the draft and who ended up being an NBA coach and NBA executive. He, uh, he said the same thing to me recently. I, I can't fight city hall. Yeah. I'm good it's... at that, but it's what I, I, you know, I, but, but if you want to see my draft coverage, remember you can see me in hustle. Love it. With, with my friend, Adam Sandler and uh, queen Latifah. I have a small part, but uh, thanks to, thanks to Adam and his happy Madison family, because they recognize that I'm a draft expert. <laughs> And I love being in that movie hustle, a little plug for Adam and a great movie as you, as we talked about earlier. Thanks for coming on, Fran. Appreciate you. Always a pleasure, Brian. Keep up the great work. I listen to your podcast and uh, you're, you're doing what I like to do in a, in a probably a broader way, which is uh, help, help successful people even be more successful. Thanks, Fran. Okay. 
Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I tell every young person, you better have a board of directors in your life. Uh, it's not just coaching, um, but in, in your life, you're going to have to make career decisions. And it might be about who you choose to date, marry, your career opportunities. You have to have people who dispassionately care about you, will give you unvarnished advice and say to you, that's not a good decision. Or I wouldn't do that if I were you.